Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Eric Texier joins us on the show today to talk about his work in the Macon and in the Rhone Valley as a winemaker, vigneron, and vine tender. He braved a storm, uh, a hurricane, in fact, to get here today, and we're glad to have him. So I'm here today with Eric Texier. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about uh, just your whole career. You you were more of a casual wine. Uh, drinker and more of a passionate rock climber. Is that is that cl- correct? Yeah, it was a long time ago, though. <laughs> How did things get going? Well, you know, uh, I was grown in a family where we would have wine almost every meal. So wine was part of my culture. I didn't know it, though. And then I went studying uh, far away kind of far away from my place. And by rock climbing, I discovered that wine was not only Bordeaux, <laughs> my first encounter with wine, but also uh, Gigondas, also uh, Beaujolais, uh, Puy Fuissé. And then I discovered that this whole world I had no idea was existing. And at the time, you weren't uh, in the wine industry by training? Absolutely not. No, no. I was uh, studying... Uh, material uh, engineering and physics oh okay and were you involved in that industry for a while yeah like uh, almost 15 years i guess before i decided that that was not my thing and i should do something else Uh, closer to nature that was the point uh, being outside and and did uh, you work for verge for a while for uh yes in France, if you want to go uh, and be uh, a grower, you have to uh, get a degree from agricultural school. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's you have to do that. And then, uh, so I decided to uh, take a year off my job. I think it was 1993. And uh, during this... Uh, uh, during this degree, I had to take uh, six months as an intern uh, in a winery or in a, an, est- an estate. So uh, I was buying wine from uh, Jean-Marie Guffens. And so I went there and he taught me. 
You were buying wine there for your own consumption. Yes, like you absolutely. were drinking bottles. Yeah, I've, now be, and again. I've been buying Gufens almost since the beginning, uh, seventy nine or ninety eighty. Uh, do you feel, in some ways, that 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 imprint of uh, kind of micro negotiant, caring a lot about the vineyard sources, uh, maybe working up and down regions, like he worked in the Couture, but he also worked in Chablis, a little bit of an outsider in terms of his own uh, stance towards the local community. Um, has that, did that, even though it was a short period of time, did that have an imprint for you in your own style later? Yes, yes, probably, of course. And, you know, I couldn't afford to buy a vineyard right away. So the best option at the beginning was to buy grapes from growers I knew and to make wine without uh, having to pay thousands of euros for hectares of lands. So yes, definitely. And when was the first release and what was that? Commercially, that was 98. Oh, okay. My first wine, though, was made in uh, 95. Oh, sure. Just for personal consumption. Not only I was selling wine around like family and friends, uh, I, I was making like three different wines and a total of 10 or 12 barrels. And how have things changed in the interim? Because it, it seems like uh, when I taste through your wines every year, there's always something that's that's up. There's always something changing. There's a new introduction of a new cuvee or there's an, uh, maybe a, a refinement to a, a technique in a vineyard, that sort of thing. Uh, what's happened just in broad strokes in the last few years? Well, uh, beginning in 01, I began to um, work the vineyards in Brezem. Okay. Uh, so that was my first ever uh, growing season that I had to handle. And so I made a small, uh, yeah, little by little, I, I took some vineyards again and again and again. And in so mostly in Brezem, a little bit in Saint-Joseph and in Cotroti. Uh, but again, this I could afford this vineyard. I couldn't afford this vineyard. So they were rental. I rent the vineyards. So... Um, in a way, I couldn't do 100% of what was in my mind. Beginning with Brezem, that was the first step, and now in Saint-Julien, Saint-Alban, I have like eight hectares, so I can uh, do what exactly I have in mind in the vineyard. So yes, definitely, each year now, beginning in 08, I think I have made a lot of tries, uh, growing different, doing specific thing in the vineyard that I thought would be interesting to see the result. And what are some of those things that have come about now that you've you've purchased land and you've been working with it, maybe refining the technique a little bit and getting a chance to follow through on your own ideas? And what have you seen? What hasn't worked? What's worked? Uh, well, that's not an easy question. Uh, if working means that I'm able to make a decent living out of it, then things that I've tried, like uh, 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 inspired by Fukuoka. Uh, and who's that? Uh, Masanobu Fukuoka was, uh, I think, was a microbiologist or okay. something like this uh, in Japan right after World War II. And he had that idea that uh, we didn't know what we were doing with modern agriculture and that most of the trouble we will uh, uh, face uh, like uh, uh, disease, bugs and so on were due to the fact that uh, we were thinking 
that we knew, but in fact that we did we didn't. So his whole idea was uh, maybe we should deal with nature instead of fight against nature to get what we want. So Foucault Katumi, Foucault Katumi is really was one of the first guy who realized that uh, modern agriculture was leading to something totally insane in terms of uh, um, how the uh, sustainability. Sure. Yeah. So the, uh, that's what my my first try was to go towards that. But obviously, uh, following 100% of his philosophy leads to something like uh, six hectoliters an hectare of yields. And uh, either I can sell the wines for $100 a bottle or I can make a decent living. So that's, I, I think I learned a lot from that, but it might not be the solution to feed my family. On the other hand, uh, uh, stopping plowing, stopping weeding, uh, trying to get a, a rid of compost uh, brought me to a very special way of growing that is efficient, for sure. So the result in terms of um, no disease, no bugs, might not be up to the philosophy itself, but it works. Uh, it works kind of great for me now. And and how would you describe that, in, kind of in contrast to what you might see in the region, either traditionally or contemporarily? Uh, well, I, I believe I'm I'm very close to rely only on the photosynthesis of my vineyards or my uh, fields to grow my grapes and to make my wine. So this is a huge improvement for me, not relying on any other kind of energy. Uh, I try now to get rid of fossil fuel for the tractors, for instance. I think I'm close to it. So that makes a huge difference because uh, probably wine, yeah, I made that calculation year, years ago uh, uh, in a bottle of wine, organic wine, you've got something like uh, uh, a small glass of oil. Yeah, because that's what it takes for the tractors. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So I'm trying to go away from that. And at one point, I think I will be able to make my wine only with the sun energy. Wow. So does that mean that you're using horses in the vineyard? No, no, not at all. No. This is not my thing. I, I, I believe that you have to... Uh, I don't have that feeling that I could work with horses okay. or uh, because i'm not a horse guy yeah no so the the idea is to have a little piece of land where i can grow like uh sunflower yeah that's it tournesol in french <laughs> uh, and make my own oil for my tractors oh, from oh. the field so i rely only on my fields my lands but with the modern tool, uh, obviously, tractor. So yeah. It's kind of like ethanol, like you make your, like a kind of gas. Diesel, diesel, yeah. A diesel, yeah, okay. Yeah. I didn't know. It's uh, kind that. of oil. It's an oil yeah. from sunflower, yeah. Huh, amazing. Uh, so it's actually like you're feeding the process from the terroir itself, like from what's given. Yeah, at least um, my goal, yeah. That's the goal. Yeah. Yeah. And um, how many different areas do you work because i know you're in different parts of the rhone and you're you're in the macon which is in burgundy but not that far away i mean uh how many different climats would you say that you're you're working right now i think it's up to almost 20 okay but i i'm only in charge uh for the vineyard 
uh, in Brezem and in Saint-Julien-Saint-Alban, which is about, okay, it's like uh, two different terroirs in Brezem and about six or seven in Saint-Julien-Saint-Alban. Uh, then like for Chateauneuf-du-Pape or for Macon, I'm not involved in the, in the vine growing, okay? The, the growers, the owners are still the growers there. They are good friends. I know them. I've been knowing them for lo quite a long time. And, um, yeah, mostly they they have the same feeling than mine. Maybe they don't do the same. Again, I I don't know. The people very often ask me, do you have control over the viticulture, like in Macon? And my answer is no, absolutely not. Yeah. Because I don't know a thing about Macon, you know. It's not the same climate, it's not the same grape, uh, it's not the same history of vineyard. So maybe if I go there and do what I think is right, I'm going to kill the vineyard or whatever. So I rely on these guys. I trust them. They do what they think they have to do. I get the grapes. I make the wine. So in this way, in Chateauneuf, in Côte-Rôti, in Macon, I'm, I'm a negociant, 100%, uh, period. So it's all about Brésem and Saint-Julien Saint-Alban. And we can say also maybe Saint-Joseph, where I am deeply involved into the vine growing. And, and how did you come about finding Brésem? Um, what, what was it that led you to that plot long, of land? <laughs> long story. Um, I was buying wine from the old guys in the Northern Rhone, like uh, Marius Jantas Dervieux, oh, okay. Raymond Trolla, uh, uh, Marcel Juge. And at, at one point I was looking for a vineyard somewhere in the Northern Rhone, and I knew that Raymond Trolla uh, was going to retire. Oh, okay. So I went to him and said, okay, um, I'm looking for some vineyard. Uh, uh, would you agree to lend me or to sell me some of your land? And he said, okay, I'm sorry, this is too late. You should have been uh, coming before. But I have an old body uh, from army in Algeria that is growing wine in a, vines in a very, very specific area uh, and makes incredible wines in Brezem. Huh. And I knew about Brezem. You did? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I knew already uh, from old books, from the 19th century books. Uh, but I thought there was no more Brezem made at that time. And I discovered that uh, Pouchoulin was making wine there. Oh, okay. Uh, so I met Monsieur Pouchoulin. I think it was in 95 or 96. And he told me that he will retire soon. And so in 98, uh, uh, we came to an agreement and uh, I took the vineyards. So Brezem, yeah, it was like a fork, you know, books first. And then this strange story with Raymond Rolla, which led me to uh, Monsieur Pouchoula. How much of what you've done is really just talking to other people? I mean, how would, how, how much is that a reality uh, in terms of if you want to work with, you know, nature in general, but vines in particular, how much is it just kind of listening to the other folks? It's huge. I mean, if you don't do that, you lose 90% of the information coming from the past. So yes, it took me first. I like it. But it took me quite some time to figure out which kind of vineyard was what I no were supposed to be what I I wanted to uh, to make as wine. So yes, like for the Saint Julien, uh, it took me like almost four years. 
to talk to people, to understand what they were doing, to learn about history, to meet the people who made wines there 50 years ago. Uh, it's, a, yeah, it's a long process. So how have uh, what how has what you're doing in San Julian changed a little bit over mm -hmm. time? Because I I know you've talked about the kind of differences between different years. Yeah, like 2009 and 2010 seems seems to come up for you with that that area. Yes, absolutely. So I began. I, I took the vineyard in '08 uh, and did the I did the first season and tries in '08. Uh, but again, this was kind of complicated because no one has been making wine there for 50 years or so. Yeah, it's so no record. Uncharted yeah, yeah, yeah. So very difficult to understand what I could do, and and this is a strange region because uh, it's at the limit um, uh, between the southern Ardèche and the northern Ardèche. So this is a Saint Julien in the Rhone, as opposed to a Saint Julien in Bordeaux. Yeah, absolutely, which is what might come to mind for a lot of yeah. Americans. Maybe. It's 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 uh, in Ardèche, about fifteen kilometers south of Cornas. Oh, okay. Okay, on the same uh, uh, bank of the Rhone, and Saint Julien is right at the limit of this geologic uh, uh, thing that. So there is limestone on the southern part of Saint-Julien and uh, granite schist and gneiss on the northern part. So it's a very complicated uh, terroir. Um, so it, and, and, and though it's the northern Rhone, they, it's the only part of the northern Rhone where they, they have been growing southern Rhone grapes like Grenache, Saint-Saul, Claret, Grenache Blanc. So it's kind of weird. I've got something like 11 grapes there uh, belonging to the northern Rhone or to the southern Rhone and planted on, on, on soils that could be northern Rhone or southern Rhone. So it's a whole mix. So it took me, it, it's no, I'm still trying things, but it took me at least one year to figure out what I could do uh, in Saint Julien. So the first commercial uh, release was 09, definitely, and only Syrah. And what do you think about it? Well, you know, I think that I learned that from a, a great, great winemaker called Jean-Claude Chanudet uh, in, in the Beaujolais, in Morgon, at Domaine Chamonat. Uh, when you make a wine, I think there are three things that you can, you can find in the wine. It's uh, terroir, vintage grape, uh, my idle wine. The wine I want to make would be like 80% terroir, okay. uh, maybe 10% vintage and 10% grape. 09 was a year where the vintage shows a lot. So maybe 50% of what I get from my 09 Saint-Julien is the expression of vintage more than terroir. I don't know if it's my fault or not, but most 09s show like that. The vintage is very strong. And not Carrington. just for you, but from no. around the world. Oh, I, I don't know. I can't say. But yes, it's my feeling at least. Yeah. 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 So maybe it was not the, the, the easiest, easiest way to begin in Saint-Julien. 10, 2010, on the other hand, it's the opposite. It shows terroir first and terroir big and almost no vintage uh, and the grape shows like almost, I would say, 5% no more. So in a way, uh, tw yeah, 2010 Saint-Julien is more what I wanted to achieve than 09. But also I'm very proud of 09 
because it's a weird thing to make a wine without knowing, especially in Europe, I would say, without knowing what the result is going to be. That's interesting because so, so yeah. much is defined and kind of yeah. there's a track record for so wow. many different areas. Yeah, absolutely. I but mean, especially, especially in France. Where there making, is yeah. not a lot of track record, no. though, at least recently. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's almost like being a new world winemaker in a way. Yeah, yeah, in a way. Yeah, find yes, something yes. different and just kind of have a hunch that it's going to work out. Yeah, definitely. The only difference is that my vines there were old. Uh, very old, uh, 70 years old. So I knew that the, the raw material would be great anyway. Uh, it's not young vines. I know it's no clones. It's a massal selection of old cultivar of Syrah there. So I knew the material would be great, but absolutely no idea what the wine was supposed to look like. So I think I did, I did my job because I didn't, I had no idea and I, I, kept my hands off, you know, some, some kind of, yeah, something like that. So I, and the result is really, it's, it's not Eric Texier will. I don't think so. Maybe in the vineyard, but certainly not at the winemaking. So I'm kind of like the owner for that, leaving the winemaking itself and discovering like anyone who first tried the, the owner in Saint Julien. I think we all had the same feeling. Something new. <laughs> well, I think uh, it was received really well. I yeah. mean, it was it was pretty tasty. You know, I haven't tried the ten yet. Maybe, maybe showing a little bit too much of the O9 uh, uh -huh. character. I mean, it definitely had a lot of fruit. You know, yeah, low acid, but I mean, good. You know, for Syrah, I mean, low acid. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Every so often, uh, I find this. Uh, I hear about a dichotomy where, in this country, a lot of people like the wines. I like the wines a lot that you make, but sometimes I hear that in France there, there's less recognition of what you're up to, or less acceptance of what you're up to. Why do you think that might be, and how does that actually play out in reality? Well, you know, the especially in French, uh, in France, uh, French growers like to identify them as part of a group. Yeah. So either you are among the traditionalists, either you are among the Bordeaux caste, which is another world, uh, either you are among the natural wine growers. Um, okay. And, but I was not part of any of these groups and I didn't keep my mouth shut I for see. many things especially for the no sulfur thing and and how so, did you come out on that I, yeah strangely i think i was one of the first if we are talking about growers i won was was i was one of the first grower that are making wine now that 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 was exposed to no sulfur wines because i was buying wine from uh, joseph chamonard I see. And Joseph Chamonard was really the first uh, no sulfur natural winemaker of the modern time. Uh, definitely. So it's, it's Morgan, yeah. And I think Chauvet took a lot from uh, Joseph Chamonard. Is that true? Yeah. yeah, because Chauvet was buying wines from Chamonard at that time as a negociant. And a lot of times people think of Chauvet as the, the father of, of that kind oh, of he, thing. He, 
I think he is definitely in terms of writing and mm -hmm. science. Mm -hmm. uh, Shamona was a grower, and so Shamona never wrote anything about that. But I was buying wines from Shamona since uh, the, the the early 1980s. So I, I was exposed to these wines, and I knew Shamona quite well. And uh, so I had a, a very precise idea of what uh, no-sulfur wines could be. And... When all these new no sulfur trend came out, most of the wines were in the same mold. You know what I mean? All the same, all the wines would taste the same, whatever the region, whatever the grape, whatever the vintage. And according to what I knew from Chauvet and Chamonix wines, that was the exact opposite. The wine they were making at that time either Chauvet or Chamonix, were incredibly precise, uh, showing the terroir like no other wines are new. And so all this carbonic trend, uh, making wines in the Beaujolais the same way they would make wine in the Languedoc or in the Loire Valley, I didn't understand, really. I didn't. So, um, yeah, I went hard on the people using uh, extensively carbonic maceration, cold carbonic maceration, and saying that that was Chauvet uh, inspiration, which is absolutely untrue. Especially if you read Chauvet writings, you realize that uh, Chauvet was really adverse to carbonic maceration on ripe vintages, was adverse to carbonic maceration on ripe grapes. Uh, so, uh, and they tried in the in the southern Rhone carbonic maceration back in the fifties, and Chauvet conclusion was that, well, forget it. So that's I think I didn't make a point. Uh, Oh, I made a point, but uh, all these guys from the natural wine movement they were so were, happy yeah, about that. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. So uh, it made the the French market for me very difficult at first. I see. Now it's much better. Is that true? Yeah, no, definitely. But uh, I mean, it's uh, mostly because my wines are well received. Uh, in the US uh, or in Northern Europe that now people are paying attention to what I'm doing in uh, in the Rhone Valley. Really, that's amazing because, I mean, not a lot of producers would say that where, like, they're, it actually, the wave went back into their own country where they weren't so popular locally. But, I mean, uh, there are examples. But, yes, definitely you know. in the in the, in the Chaudrestin portfolio. I mean, he was the guy who discovered the Marc Olivier in a way and Marc, was not well known in France for years and now yeah it's part of the trend and people are paying attention because the wines are absolutely outstanding yeah but yeah it was not part of the group you know yeah and so. does that make it hard because the, the way that like there's not a three-tier system in France no. so there's a little bit more Ability for cliquish behavior to like broadly affect trends, and if this guy's that guy's friend, maybe he doesn't buy your wine, and he's the cavis for a store or a restaurant. You think that there's some? It's exactly the, the thing. Yes. Uh, so no distribution in France, almost none. So most of the uh, uh, restaurants and uh, wine bars will buy direct from the grower. And so a very few cavists, especially in Paris or wine bars, can make a trend out of nothing. And uh, 
So there are people who will be part of it and people who want the period. And then it's very complicated to fight against that. Because uh, a lot of people in this country complain about the three-tier system, but in a, in a sense, it, for whatever its faults might be, it tends to kind of insulate against that. Like it insulates five guys being consumers, really uh, directly influencing how wines are made by their popularity. Do you know what I mean? Yes, yeah, I understand that. But in no way, uh, yes, I mean, the, the obviously the U.S. market is where all the most of the 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 old school guys from Europe uh, found a market back in the nineties, and I see no other countries where 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 it was true. Like England, it's about the same than in France, you know. So all these old uh, old school producers, uh, I don't know, like Auvergnois maybe, yeah. or uh, they found, or, or even Gentas Dervieux I was talking uh, sure. earlier. I mean, nothing is hotter than Gentas in New York. Yeah, nothing yeah. is hotter. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if yeah. you could say you're going to a Gentas dinner, like people are angry with jealousy, <laughs> or at least I am. Maybe yeah. I'm just speaking with me. Yeah. But. but can you realize that Gentas uh, had trouble selling his ninety ones in France back yeah. then because he was the opposite style than uh, Gigal? Sure. So thanks to the U.S. market and the, the three steer system, probably uh, these wines could find a market right here. So. Sometimes I hear that Japan had a big influence in kind of cradling natural wines uh, before they became popular in the States. Did you see any of that yourself? And yeah. what do you think about the Japanese market in general? Yes, no, definitely. That's true. Uh, the, the, the Okay, natural wine is going to be <laughs> difficult to define, but yeah. for sure. For us too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but for sure, the trend in the natural wine uh, making that leads to uh, fermentary aromas, primary or secondary fermentary aromas, close to what you would find in a in a, a cider uh -huh, or uh -huh. in a beer. Sure. Uh, the Japanese, I think it goes well with Japanese cuisine first. I see. And I think most of the young people in Japan are very used to these tastes. Uh-huh. Taste, yeah. So the, I think Early in the 80s, some people who were into that kind of uh, carbonic uh, fermentary wines uh, found a, a way on the on the Japanese market very early. And I would say, yeah, maybe in the mid 80s. So before the trend on the Morgon. And, yeah. and you know, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but just is it possible that that kind of winemaking isn't so much traditional as it is a new style of modernism or a, an alternative style of modernism, bringing out uh, more fruit through carbonic, uh, full carbonic on ripe fruit? Well, as Beaujolais is concerned, it's part of the tradition, probably mm -hmm. not at that point, but definitely the gamay in the Beaujolais has been made whole cluster without crushing for years and years, if not decades or centuries. But now this approach, like on Gonache in the Southern Rhone, this is out of space. I mean, uh huh. Yeah, it's, it's really, 
it's there is no nowhere. tradition for that never and if people wouldn't this time for sure they would crush always and if you look at any old book you see people almost naked crushing the grapes uh, like they still do in Portugal. So there is no, there was no tradition about a, even a semi-carbonic maceration in these regions. Certainly not in Burgundy or in Alsace. Or, but now you find all these wines that are uh, made this way to bring out uh, yeah, primary fruit or secondary aromas coming from the fermentation because I think there is something universal about these aromas For so it's part of the globalization <laughs> maybe uh, I shouldn't say that but I see yes this carbonic maceration trend called carbonic maceration trend as part of the globalization of taste uh, you can make these wines wherever you want on the planet uh, that could be in australia or in california uh, no matter the grape no matter the the terroir you get almost the same result so i see it as a globalization the same way that and uh, using the, the use of new oak or cultivated yeast yes definitely i mean it's me i don't say it's the truth but yeah i see it the same way and one of the things that you decided to do uh, was to use stems with Syrah in, in a, uh, a fashion that harkened back to some of the more traditional producers that you tended to enjoy. How did that decision come about? What does it mean in the finished taste? And, and why do you do that? Okay. Uh, when I began making Brezem, so that was 98, uh, we would harvest the uh, first week of October with green stems, uh -huh. almost fluorescent green stems. So my first feeling was maybe it's not a good idea to put these stems uh, in, in the vats with the grapes because I'm going to get the, a very, very um, uh, grassy taste or, you know, herbal. Mm -hmm. So I decided at that time, again, I was not involved in the vine growing at that stage, okay? So uh, I decided that he, uh, to go for the main trend, uh, this stem. Because that's what was popular in the Northern yeah, at that time. Yeah, yeah, It's still now. Beginning in the 80s, I would say, with the, the Bordelais enologist. Uh, and, but I, I, I had in mind... So Brezem was not Saint-Julien. I could taste the wines from the 60s, 70s from Pouchoula. And these wines were absolutely amazing. To my taste, were so appealing. And the, the terroir of Brezem was, was showing a great deal. Uh, so, and Pouchoula told me many times that I should quit this timing and that I would get the same result that he did. Uh, by not distemming and shortering macerations. So it is a shorter maceration. Definitely. But also what happened is that by growing the... By, no, not growing the soil, but paying attention to the soil the way we did beginning in 01, we noticed that the, the stems got riper and riper each year for the same phenolic ripeness of the berry itself. And now, 10 years later, when I pick my grapes in Brezem, which is 
probably like around the mid-September, not beginning of October, my steps are my stems are not green anymore. They are not even brown. Now they are gray. Really? Yeah. What in French what we call aouté. So there is no more sap in these uh, uh, stems. They're dry, and I think they bring something from the terroir that I I don't get if I distem. So I don't get this very herbal uh, green taste from green grapes, not anymore. And I get something from the terroir. It's my feeling, okay? But again, all the guys we were talking about, Jantas Dervieux, Raymond Trolla, Marcel Juge, all these guys wouldn't distem. Never, never, never. So I had that in mind, okay? So it was the first impression about these green stems that kept me away from using them at first. But now, okay, I'm done. Eh? 100% stems in my hands. <laughs> And what about indigenous yeast? I've seen you write uh, and translate some texts about indigenous yeast before. Uh, how is what you think uh, about indigenous yeast affecting what you're making in the vineyard and, I'm sorry, in the winery? And what's going on? Well, I, I have no scientific evidence for that. Again, uh, this is what I feel in my wines. Uh, Hopefully it's true. Through the tasting. Yes, through the tasting, definitely. And also through the winemaking, because you, you, there, there are things in the winemaking, especially in the very first days, that you can notice that are obviously different from one place to another if you don't inoculate. Uh, so I always get the same, um, uh, the, 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 the same sheen of, uh, I don't know how you say that, uh, of fermentation year after year, like in Brezem or in Saint-Joseph. If I don't, uh, if I inoculate, all my, all my vats will behave the same year after year. So obviously native yeast uh, express something different each year and in each vineyard. So I don't know what it exactly, if it is exactly uh, related to terroir, but definitely something different is happening in all my vats. And I don't want to, to get rid of that. And the, the risk itself, which is the main point about the analogist, the risk itself, if you, if you are careful enough, if you are deeply inspired by Chauvet work and not only uh, what people tell about Chauvet philosophy, then it's not a big deal. It, you can handle that easily. And something else you do um, that I, I was curious about is that you, you do add a layer of CO2 uh, during the winemaking. How does that work? What does that do? How does that affect things? This is mostly because when you go for native yeast, you never know when the fermentation is going to start. Uh, and uh, it can take like four or five days, and especially in hot years. Uh, then you can have the top of the vat kind of spoiled by uh, a very specific yeast. Uh, so, and this very specific yeast is very sensitive to two things, uh, to carbonic gas and to alcohol. So there are two ways. So I choose the carbonic way 
I could have choose uh, what like uh, uh, people do in the Beaujolais to spray the top of my uh, vats with alcohol, either finished wine from the previous year or distilled wine. And this would have the same effect on these. Again, this is a no-sulfur winemaking, so we fear uh, bacteria or yeast we don't want. So that's a prophylactic de decision against this yeast that we don't want in the vats, mostly. But it's not, that's nothing to do with carbonic, okay? Carbonic maceration. It's just to protect and to, uh, yeah, to, to make a, a, a ceiling, a gas ceiling that is really effective against this yeast. And over time, uh, you've, you've perhaps shifted stylistically a little bit in terms of some of those decisions, but maybe a few others. It seemed to me uh, when I tried your wine several years ago, they were more dense and, and more uh, fruit, fruit forward. Um, what, what has been your own kind of conception of your own wines in the past and then today? What do you think about your own wines? Well, mostly that was all this stem problem, okay? This comes 100% from this stem problem. Uh, okay, I decided to de-stem because of these unripe stems. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, de by de-stemming, I would go for longer macerations. And if you do longer maceration, then you extract more and so on and so on. So that was not a real will at first, but they, the wine ended by being bigger, more extracted, probably with more fruit than terroir. Uh, that's what we said before about the stems. So going back to whole cluster made me shorten the maceration from three, four weeks to uh, 10, 12 days maximum. Sometimes wow, even that much different. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Like in 08, the, uh, the Cote Roti, I think, was macerated like six days uh, maximum. So, yeah, so I shortened the, the maceration time. And so the extraction is close to nothing because at the very beginning of the fermentation, it's almost impossible. And except if you do pumping over, over that I, mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I never did. You don't pump over. No, 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 never, never. That's... No, even at the beginning, I wouldn't do that. I would do pigeage for sure, mm -hmm. which uh, is punching down. Yeah, punching down. Uh, but no pumping over, and the pumping over would be the, the only solution you have in the starting fermentation. Punching down when it's not started enough when you don't have enough gas to push the cap up the vat yeah it's almost useless so now my winemaking because i don't distem anymore makes me doing almost nothing because i can't okay since i don't use the pumping over uh punching down 10 days you don't do nothing so I quit doing any kind of extraction. It's only I use a kind of uh, mesh of wood to keep the cup under the juice. And so there is no more extraction. So obviously the fact that I don't distem anymore had a huge impact on the style of the wines. And not only because of the stems, but because of For everything. What, what yeah. that means, yeah, what, exactly. what chain that puts in yeah. place. So I would say mostly that's the... The big difference is there. 
One of the things uh, that came out when we talked with Kevin McKenna on the show of Louis Dresner was that he was very happy about the kind of conversations that would occur between growers during their visits to the States uh, because of uh, the portfolio tastings and multiple growers from the, the book would come in at the same time. And he felt that just the conversations that they would have um, in the bus or at the restaurant uh, would would actually get them to think in ways that were uh, helpful to their own process. Um, has that happened for you at all during, I know you've been to the United States several times. I'm just curious. Uh, has yeah, that- yeah, no, it's huge. Like, uh uh, meeting Didier Barouillet from Chlorosoulange, I think he had a huge impact of what I've been doing in the vineyard. That's, Is that true? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. The, it's huge. I mean, there is no way I, I could do the same now in the vineyard if I haven't met uh, uh, Didier Barouillet. And uh, in a way, the, um, uh, knowing growers from Italy was an incredible uh, amount of knowledge that I could take uh, within two weeks or something like that. So like the use of clay, uh, trying to get rid of the uh, the oak on any cuvées and uh, all the experiment that uh, Elisabetta Foradori or uh, uh, Atkos uh, Okipinti did uh, earlier, all these was a tremendous amount of knowledge that I could get from these people and that I'm using now. So, yeah, it's a huge thing. Um, so have you experimented with clay at all? I remember one time we talked about you had an interest in that direction. I, I don't think I've tried anything uh, that's been produced in that fashion from you. What What's going on with that? What's your own thinking and, and what's, what's up? Well, so far, to me, the the most... Uh, urgent thing to do is to get rid of any kind of oak on my whites. I see. Uh, but I don't want to macerate. Uh, I don't see the point. I've been making tries. Uh, so it's no not, skin contact, no, no orange no, no, wine. No, no, it's not part of the tradition in France. I think uh, bringing out the terroir uh, like in Saint-Julien, Saint-Alban by doing uh, extended maceration or skin contact has no sense if you if you put that in historical perspective. Then you can make good wines, maybe very good wines, but certainly not part of the history of the terroir of Saint-Julien. So I don't want to go for maceration. Uh, so the my first tries are to ferment uh, the, the juice without the skins in the tinajas, so the what you call amphoras, tinajas in fact, because they come from Spain, and to do the aging in these. But unlike Elisabetta for the whites, they won't be skin contact, which makes the thing very different and a, a little bit more difficult because protection against oxi- oxidation is much lower. Uh, so, so far, I, I'm still trying and my main concern is the sealing of these tinaras. So with like wax or... Yeah. So far, I didn't find a, a good way to do it, a very good way that would make it efficient to do all my whites in it. But this is definitely the goal. So I get 50 tinaras this year. And hopefully, uh, if the system we imagine uh, 
uh, a little while ago for sealing this Tinaras is efficient enough, all my whites will be done in Tinaras next year. And uh, you're a producer that really strikes me as unusual in the sense that you engage with your audience online. I, you know, I, I hear you, uh, not here, but I see postings from you, um, you know, from your home in, in, in the Rhone or in the Macon, sorry, um, where you talk with actual consumers on this side who may never have met you, may never have been to the place where you make wine. So it's not a local consumption base. What's that like? And um, because a lot of producers don't do it, although it seems like, uh, you know, obviously it's the modern world. It's easy to do in a sense, but it's rare uh, that someone would frequently weigh in um, their expertise. And, and is, what are the frustrations and realities of that? And what are the joys of that? Thank you. You should you shouldn't be afraid to to make new friends and new enemies. Yeah. And that's the point. <laughs> I think a lot of growers are afraid to go online and to, to have arguments sometimes with people who don't like their wines because, uh, I don't know, it has been the same for the past maybe 40 years in the wine business, at least in France. Uh, the the enologists uh, learn how to please everyone. I see. And so if you try to please everyone in the cellar, then you don't want to spoil that online. Right. By fighting over a board. Or <laughs> you don't want to take a stand in a sense that's going to yeah. piss people off. Exactly. And I, I, I really don't care. I know my wines are very polarizing. Why so do you think that might be? Uh, I have no idea. No, no, really. Just, you but, see it happening, no? Yeah, part of, partly the terroir. I'm, I'm sure of that because... Uh, I, I remember reading a book from the the 1920s about Cotroti. I think it was a uh, a fight uh, again um, among two journalists. And so even at that time, that was very polarizing. People saying Cornas, it's too rustic. It lacks the the elegance of the best wines of Burgundy. So I think the Northern Rhone is a place where if you do. Uh, real wines from the terroir, you get 50% of the population who will like them, maybe love them, but 50% of the population will find them too too hard to mm -hmm. understand, mm -hmm. uh, too acidic, too tannic, too, <laughs> too reductive. I think it's not the Beaujolais. <laughs> so the wines by themselves, uh, I think, are polarizing. And I'm not a very politically correct guy either. So uh might be part of the thing. I don't know. But definitely for me, it's a huge... Uh, it's a joy, really. It's a joy. And especially meeting the people in the reality afterwards, uh, after making exchange about the the Brezem terroir and being able to to bring the people to visit me in France, to show them really what's in the vineyard, the the place, the everything. I think that's part of the my wines and other natural, so-called natural wines are probably not easy sale if you don't uh, explain a lot mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. the, the terroir, what you do in the vineyard, and so I think it's a incredible tool to be online and to be able to, to re reach yeah. people and, and do yes. some of that explaining. Absolutely. Uh, what besides the the clay 
it might be coming up from you that's new that people may not know about yet what are you up to back there well i think the, the uh most of what i'm doing these days has to do with the soil which is not very sexy in terms of communication but yeah i've been working a lot uh, for the past seven years on uh finding a new way uh, to to grow vines uh and mostly by working on the soil so i would say that now about if 80 or 90 percent of what's in the bottle comes from the the grapes uh, probably 90 percent of what comes from the grapes is coming from the soil uh, and i've been studying a lot and i've been meeting tons of growers not involved into wine or vine uh, but that 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 have a huge experience in um, using uh, off the track uh, uh, agriculture to achieve what they are doing. Especially in Germany, people that are growing wheat uh, have had a, an incredible experience for the past fifty years, uh, not to plow anymore, uh, how to maintain a cover. Uh, based on um, different plants uh, that are able to to make uh, uh, organic compounds um, uh, disposable for or not disposable I don't know but available for the for the plants you want to grow without any kind of modern intervention that is quite fascinating and I think uh, the next step now is to create a school in France, where uh, 20 students a year coming from all over the planet will come and learn all these uh, uh, techniques uh, inherited from uh, Fukuoka, permaculture, Bill Mollison, uh, or agroecology from uh, uh, all over the place. So that will be the next big thing for me. Because uh, uh, I remember when you said you went to, to viticulture school in Bordeaux, only 5% was viticulture. And it was yeah, yeah, mostly yeah. analogy. Yeah, fifty percent of classes were about uh, cultiv cultivated yeast and use of sulfur. Yeah, uh, we spend more time on chaptalization than on uh, uh, the use of uh, uh, organic fertilizer. So that was really a shock for me. I mean, uh, spending hours on how you could get the best machine to dissolve tons of sugar into warm wine. Uh, that that was really a shock and spending not even one afternoon on the techniques that you could use to get the under the vines uh, to, to weed without chemicals. So it was totally unbalanced in my mind and I realized that modern viticulture was at the service of winemaking, really, that was the, the the viticulture was designed to get the grapes you will use for very specific winemaking, and I was kind of horrified. <laughs> I almost gave up. Is that true? Oh no. yeah. Um, you know, you kind of sat and watched—not that you sat, but you were there for the Rhone renaissance in a way i mean you know over the last 30 years the rhone uh really kind of 
blossomed in interest worldwide. American consumers started to buy Chateauneuf de Pop. They started to spend a lot of money on Cote Roti. Um, what have been the benefits of that living in the Rhone in terms of making wine there? And what have been the more harmful sides of that, that more attention to the place from the market? The huge benefit is definitely that all these vineyards were replanted. I don't know, but I think when I began to buy Cote Roti in the early 80s, the vineyard surface was done like 40 or 50 hectares. Now they are back to uh, 2,800. No, excuse me, uh, to 280 hectares. Uh, so which is almost 100% of the land of Cote Roti that was replanted. So that's very good. I mean, to see all these vineyards uh, planted again. But the bad side of it is that I think the true expression of this terroir is totally gone now. And this renaissance uh, in terms of growing and, and setting the wines uh, was done against the, the traditional expression of the terroir of the Northern Rhone. Mostly because uh, enologists were uh, trained in Bordeaux and Montpellier and so this is part of the globalization. There was no enology school in the Northern Rhone, uh, no uh, training schools for vine growing in the Northern Rhone. So all the young generation learned from Bordeaux or Montpellier, and they were trained to grow Bordeaux vineyards or, or Languedoc vineyards, and they were trained to make wines according to modern enology, not to tradition. And so that's the result. And if you look carefully, the, 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 the estate where the, they never stopped making wine through the 50s and 60s are the estate now who are making the more traditional wines because they never lost that. We could say like Clap or Chave or obviously they still are part of the tradition and the wines don't show this modern side that most of the people who had to hire consultants in the 80s, 90s are making now. And you, you drink pretty widely. Are there uh, wines in the world that you're, you find yourself being really drawn to outside of the Rhone and, and Burgundy? And are there wines that you really just have found that you don't care for and are not drawn to? And why, why might those be? Oh, I, yeah, we, we, we could talk about uh, early 80s or late 70s uh, Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa. You dig on that? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, me too. I still have some. I, I still have some in my cellar. Well, you lived in the States for a while. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I bought most of my uh, U.S. wines in London because nobody would buy them yeah. back then. And they were very affordable. And these wines are really amazing. Uh, yeah, Mayakamas from uh, the 70s or Heights or whatever. These wines were absolutely unique and in the best way. Honestly, these days I have a hard time finding an, cab, uh, a cab uh, souvenir from uh, Napa Valley that I would drink. Uh, so, the, And it's the same process than in the Northern Rhone, I think. Uh, uh, so I, I don't say that it's worse or, or not than in the Northern Rhone, but about the same. 
Well, I care for I, I used to care for Bordeaux wines, but the Bordeaux from the early 60s or 70s were kind of weird. But uh, yeah, 60s, 50s, 40s, all these Bordeaux wines were absolutely great wines to me. Honestly, I don't buy Bordeaux anymore, except from a few friends that are making good wines in unknown terroirs there. Uh, that's for true. Uh, and also, I don't like very much this change in Germany, uh, switching from uh, the traditional sweet, uh, incredibly precise style they had to these big, dry wines. I don't see the point. Uh, but hopefully they still do a lot of very good uh, traditional uh, wines. Spain, Spain, and especially if we talk about uh, Rioja, uh, yeah, I used to drink a lot of Spanish wines when I was a kid because it, that was very close to where I lived. And my parents were lovers of, the, you know, the old style uh, Riojas. Well, today I'm not sure I want to buy these wines anymore. So it's, it has to do with this kind of globalization of the technique of winemaking and the fact that now you meet mostly people who make wine. I'm sure it's, there is no such a word as winemaker in French, you know that. The, the guys who produce wine are called vignerons. And they are not winemakers. And I think making wine is something that le that led to this globalization of taste and wines that I I don't find very interesting these days. But otherwise, all over the planet, I think even in Chile, in Argentina, in you know, in Australia, New Zealand, I have tasted wines that were absolutely delicious and driven by terroir, or at least by uh, some uh, uh, some kind of history that are very interesting. Yeah, definitely. Not talking about Italy, of course. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, so is, is Italy traditionally kind of been off the radar for you? Or is it off the radar for a lot of French people, just in general? Yeah, Italian wines in France uh, are very often industri industrial cheap uh, crap. Uh -huh. So... Uh, uh, we would get, in the Rhone area, we would get very good Barolos and Barariscos, but very often extremely expensive. Uh, so I couldn't afford that as a student. So I began buying it Italian wines from very good producers only in the in the late 90s. Uh, yeah. So uh, it's quite new to me, Italy. But I'm now deeply impressed by these wines. Uh, the only wine I knew for quite long and that I've been drinking for years, it's Valentini. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh. That was available in my town for whatever reason that I don't know exactly. And they were affordable, weirdly. So I've been uh, drinking... So yeah, you lived in the one place <laughs> yeah, where yeah, they were yeah. available and affordable. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been drinking Valentini for years and years and years. And also Bea. Mm -hmm. hmm. Also so uh, if you could correct or if if you, you could have an impact on changing what you see as a winemaker culture that that uh, has lost touch with the terroir, what would be the first steps to go, doing Go that? into the vineyard. Yeah. 
walk in there one day. Yeah. yeah, see what's going on over there. Yeah. Yeah, stop stop buying expensive shoes that you don't want to spoil by walking in the vineyard. Yeah. That would be the first step. And I think it's the most important. I've seen so much winemakers who don't have the beginning of a clue of what's going on in the vineyard and and more specifically in the soil uh that that is i think the yeah the the, the base of all the problems the, the yeah the origin of all the problems they have to be back in the vineyard they have to realize that soil is where all starts and and the rest is only yeah, uh, the it's yeah. It relies on what you've done at first with your soil, and it's not the opposite. You don't go in the vineyard telling people what they should do because you know what you want to do with your winemaking, and you need these grapes to achieve what you wanted to do, and then you will do with the soil the same thing. Uh, just to get the perfect grape you want for your winemaking should be the the reverse way. I, I remember you talked about a, a famous winemaker in Burgundy as putting a straitjacket on the wines to make it taste the same way every year. Uh, kind of, there was a stylistic imprint that was appealing to the market because this is someone who's quite quite well known and, and well thought of, but that that. Uh, maybe straightjacketed what with the raw material that was given by the differences in vintage uh, versus a producer that uh, wasn't well known that you felt that uh, you know maybe four out of ten years he made a good wine maybe the other six years weren't so great honestly uh, but then one or two of those years were fantastic stupendous uh, he really channeled the vintage and your preference was for the latter guy um, is that is that a proper retelling of what you think or not? And and what is appealing about that to you? No, no, uh, yeah. Obviously, I'm not a good consumer uh, now because mostly I make I exchange wines, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, so I don't have to pay the big price. So it's not a big deal if I find a, an off bottle. Um, it. It's not a big deal, okay, even for Poma or Volney, uh, I'm not going to be bankrupt because one bottle is not good. But I, I understand very well that if you are buying the wines uh, in New York City and if you get a weird bottle of Volney Premier Cru that you had to pay $100, uh, uh, you have the right to be mad, definitely. Uh, so uh, from my point of view of course the wine the the one bottle of the good vintage of the later uh, grower is going to be much more satisfying for me than all the good mean good vintages that the the first one will would would make but i i really understand that we have to be careful that most of the people can't afford to get bad bottles. I'm very aware of that, okay? So I'm not defending the fact that growers uh, could be uh, making wines, great wines, one year out of 10, and then so-so wines uh, against the guy who is making decent wine every year. But decent wine every year 
I think it leads the wine industry towards what beer is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people are going to make uh, brand wines that are always decent, uh, never great for sure, uh, but where you always get uh, uh, in the glass what you paid for. I think it's kind of, yeah, again, globalization, the same sense that wine is something different than these products. It's not... Uh, uh, food industry product. It shouldn't be. I so guess. separated from nature, uh, making, yes, yeah, because that yeah. nature, because nature doesn't provide that level of consistency yeah, in general. Yeah, definitely, like, but also our work and our skills should be that uh, not to make decent wine only one years out of ten. So there is no excuse for making a wine that is uh, spoiled by bacteria. Uh, to me, this is really a mistake. It can happen once in a while because we don't know everything and but no way that i could release eight vintage out of ten spoiled by bacteria is totally undrinkable that you have to use to make a a salad sauce Uh, no no of course as a winemaker each time I, i i encounter an incredible wine even coming from a a producer that make Usually, wines that are spoiled, I'm interested, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of course, but that shouldn't be the way. Yeah, no, I don't think so. But what is the what is the goal? I mean, you mentioned a, a kind of willingness to channel uh, a vintage, make it part of the product, so that if it if it tastes uh, you know too much like a how it does every year you've somehow failed but at the same time not to uh let it control the the entire taste like we spoke about with that 2009 san julian earlier so what is the what is the right path what is the 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 correct style in your own mind i think it's again this this should be the result of something an intellectual process uh, that is very difficult to put in part, I, I guess. Uh, I think at one point, if you feel, if you begin to feel okay with the terroir or a specific vineyard, then you don't have to think too much about that. And I think throughout all the growing season, you noticed very little things, and that will make a whole. So at the end, the result is going to be okay. So there is no recipe, I guess. It's a, it's yeah, it's a, a pile of very small details that you notice conscientiously or not. By the way, sometimes you don't really notice it, but a month later you remember, and this is part of the process that will lead you to say, okay. We are not going to harvest on the 10th, but on the 15th. And obviously, I used to make tons of uh, tests, uh, you know, lab tests, to know when I would pick. And I realized that I don't do it anymore now, Uh, especially in Brezem, that I know quite quite well now. Uh, So, yeah, it's hard to explain, but... At one point, if you let your uh, 
if you let your feelings uh, do part of the job at least, then you get the right, you do the right things one way or another. And it's yeah very difficult to write down. I mean, this is, I would be in trouble if I had to write a book saying how I make wines, how I grow vines, and how should be the result. It's difficult to explain. I, I could tell you more uh, in front of a glass of wine of a specific vintage or a specific place because I could say, okay, this one, if I could go back, this is what I won't do and this is what I will do again, definitely. It's, yeah, it would be more like that, you know? Uh, yeah. Uh, remembering what I've done in a specific vintage or and a specific vineyard, what I wouldn't do today, what I would go on doing, yeah. How important is value to you? Because when I look in the American market, your wines seem well-priced. Um, you know, I know you're not dealing always with the super high-end uh, terroir in terms of nomen hierarchy, but, you know, you do have Coroti, and it seems like they never kind of top out at the top end of the pricing spectrum. Is it important to you that people drink the wines, or what is important to you when you, you set pricing? Uh, definitely for the low low end wines like the Côte du Rhône, uh, uh, I make this wine and hope really deeply hope that anyone, almost anyone, uh, at least in European countries or Western countries, can afford to buy one bottle a year and to taste it. I know it's not possible in most of the part of the world, but at least in these countries, uh, I hope. Most of the people can afford to buy one bottle of Côte du Rhône. Then I wouldn't say that for the high end, like the Côte Roti, uh, of course, because I have to pay for the grapes. But also, uh, I see these uh, wines in a very different way. Uh, like I told you before, I was grown in a family where wine was part of the meal every day. And I think everyone, at least, uh, in France or in Europe, deserve to uh, get a decent bottle of wine uh, that is made uh, with a very minimum amount of additives uh, to go with everyday uh, meal. Côte Rôti, it's a different story. Uh, there is a big history there. Uh, it's difficult to grow these vineyards. Uh, so I... I as soon as I can bring one bottle of Côte du Rhône uh, to each one who wants it, I feel okay that I could produce a wine that is more expensive. But there is no way I would sell a wine for the price of, uh, uh, I don't know, of uh, almost a car. <laughs> because it's only food in a way. Huh? So uh, you, one, I hope these wines will be all drunk at the right time, but I hope that no one will stock my wines in a cellar just to resell them at auction. So yes, I think the pricing is also part of drinkability. Uh, if I sell my old vine Brezem for $250 a bottle, I know that 90% of these wines won't be drunk by anyone but will be resell uh, in the future on auction, at auction just to make a profit. And that doesn't fit at all my philosophy. 
Eric Texier, Vigneron in the Rhone and in the Macon. Thank you for being here today and explaining a little bit about a, a lot of what you do. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lee. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.